Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday. It is January the 22nd, 2021. My goodness gracious, the clock is racing out of control. Um, Here we are at the end of the week. We have a new president. Um, I have lots of skepticism that goes along with that, and I'm here to share it with you today, so I thank you for joining me. Um, Hope you are doing well wherever you are. We certainly are living in a perilous and tumultuous time. Um, it's interesting, The if you saw it, I, and I only saw bits of it, the inauguration went off without a hitch. Um, certainly no, uh, you know, soaring prose to be heard from Joe Biden. Um, but what I did here was disturbing. It was supposed to be a unifying speech, but to talk about uh, protecting America from white supremacists, the Capitol ring by an unprecedented level of security, Um, Thankfully, nothing happened. But you really have to wonder, was the purpose of the National Guard to protect the, pardon me, to protect the inauguration, or was it to send a message to Americans uh, that there's a new sheriff in town and we are lodged and in charge? Because while the National Guard was protecting Washington, who was protecting America? Joe Biden has made it clear that he does not like the idea of securing America's borders. Our borders and the borders of any country are that country's first and last line of defense. In fact, the 9-11 Commission made it clear, and I provided testimony to that commission, that border security is a major tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Why in the world can we so blithely ignore threats from outside the United States, at least for this president, while talking about threats that might emanate from within our own borders. Certainly any extremist, and I don't care what their flavor is, extremism is worrisome and dangerous. Anybody who believes that violence is the way of resolving problems uh, is missing the point to the exercise and, quite frankly, poses a serious threat to our republic, to the democratic process. It's an anathema to what Americans believe in. Should we go after radicals? Sure, from both sides. But it's remarkable that when you saw the rioting this summer, many news organizations, and in some of the cases it was really outrageous, reporters standing there with flames erupting all around them and with a straight face. I mean, these people should get an Academy Award saying the demonstrations have been largely peaceful. Right. And the flames behind you is a barbecue, a weenie roast, a marshmallow roast. What were the flames? Why were the cars overturned? Why were the buildings smashed? I guess we have to redefine what peaceful means. And, and again, we seem to keep redefining what everything means in this era of the cancel culture. Uh, now Joe Biden wants to eliminate the word alien from our immigration statutes and replace it with the term non-citizen. That's actually more accurate in my judgment than immigrant, 
<clears throat> because the legal definition, as provided in the Immigration and Nationality Act, the legal definition for an alien is any person who is not a citizen or national. So certainly aliens are not citizens. Um, so non-citizen, that's a reasonable way of describing an alien, but why to go to the bother? Language seems to be evolving. And language does evolve. With technology, we get new terms, software versus hardware. Imagine 50 years ago telling somebody, I'm going out to Staples to buy some software. Software? What the hell is software? I know what hardware is. So, you know, language evolves. We develop a, a new vernacular, especially where science is concerned. But we're not just seeing this in science. So we're not just seeing it in slang. You know, every generation had its slang. <clears throat> this is about the alteration of language to achieve a goal and the goal is a nefarious one. You eliminate words to eliminate the thoughts that the words represent. That's a problem. That's a very big problem in point of fact. So when you have the government saying, we're going to eliminate words, and when you have the tech giants saying, we're going to eliminate your account, we're talking about heavy-duty censorship. And, and this is a very dangerous road that we're going down because that's how fascism and dictatorships come to power we're going to restrict what you can say we're going to punish you if you dare try to say it and things can very quickly spiral out of control and that's why we need to be mindful about what is happening with language i want to talk about immigration and joe biden but before i do that i really think it's important that we talk about what george orwell had to say about language because <clears throat> what you're seeing and what we have been seeing, going back to Jimmy Carter, I've spoken about it before when Carter said immigration agents could no longer use the term illegal alien. We had to call them undocumented citizens, uh, undocumented workers, and it was undocumented immigrants. This is crazy stuff. So what I want to read to you today is a portion of the uh, appendix. Bear me one second. I want to bring up, uh, if I can find it, purpose of Newspeak. Here we go. The purpose of Newspeak, as defined in the appendix for George Orwell's book, 1984. And if you haven't read 1984, I'm giving you a homework assignment. Please read it. It's an interesting book. It's a worrying book. But as you read it, you're going to find that what you're witnessing is really explained very clearly, predicted very clearly, uh, in, in 1984. I don't care what the calendar says. I, I mentioned that it's 2021. It could just as easily be 1984. Let me read this to you. The purpose of Newspeak was not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to the devotees of the English Socialist Party, something that Orwell called INGSOC, the English Socialist Party, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. It was intended that when Newspeak had been adopted, once and for all, and old speak forgot, that's what you and I speak today, folks. Once old speak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is a thought diverging from the principles of the English Socialist Party, INGSOC, should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. Its vocabulary was so constructed as to give exact and often very subtle expression to every meaning that a party member, meaning a Socialist Party member, could properly wish to express while excluding all other meanings and also the possibility of arriving at them by indirect methods. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly 
by eliminating undesirable words and by stripping such words as remained of unorthodox meanings and so far as possible of all secondary meanings whatsoever. And to give a single example, the word free still existed in newspeak, but it could only be used in such statements as this dog is free from lice or this field is free from weeds. It could not be used in its old sense of being politically free or intellectually free since political and intellectual freedoms no longer existed even as concepts and were therefore of necessity nameless. Quite apart from the suppression of definitely heretical words, reduction of vocabulary was regarded as an end in itself and no word that could be dispensed with was allowed to survive. Newspeak was designed not to extend but to diminish the range of thought, and this purpose was indirectly assisted by cutting the choice of words down to a minimum. So understand what we're talking about. You eliminate words, you eliminate thoughts. As you eliminate thoughts, you force people to have fewer thoughts. Fewer thoughts means the outside, the government, the people around you, the authorities would gain control as you were giving up control. It's kind of like a battlefield. You're giving up territory, you're giving up turf, and the government is seizing it. In this case, this is intellectual and mental turf. We're going to take away the words so we can control you. And look at Twitter, taking away the words. Cut our communication down to a bare minimum. And then Twitter comes along and says, we don't like what you're saying. It sounds like hate speech. So you know what? We're going to shut you down. We're going to shut you down. They did that with Parler over at Google. We're going to eliminate anybody who does not tow the company line. Either you agree with us or you're an adversary. And now you have members of Congress saying, we need legislation against hate speech. We need legislation against um, various radical groups. Do we need those laws? Well, I certainly don't like Nazis. I also don't like terrorists on the left side. I don't care which side you're on. If you think your way to affect the changes you want is to burn down buildings, beat people up, and shut down free speech. Even if I agree with you, and I don't agree with the radicals at all, it'll be like the deal with Donald Trump. I knew exactly what he said when there were demonstrations, uh, and you had the KKK show up. He wasn't a fan of the KKK. He simply said, yes, you've got the radicals on both sides, and you also have fine people on both sides. He wasn't referring to the KKK or, or to the crazies. He's simply saying that people came out to demonstrate and not all of them were crazy. But look at how it got twisted. That's the tactic. That's the tactic of the um, of the media these days. We're going to take something you said and we're going to twist the definition. And by twisting the definition, we're going to create a problem for you. Is this really how America is supposed to function? That's an issue. And it threatens the First Amendment. It threatens the Constitution. It threatens our freedom. There are kids today being taught on college campuses, and they've been absorbing the lessons that the First Amendment is dangerous. Free speech is dangerous. Think about that. Free speech is dangerous. Every American soldier who gave his or her life, every American soldier who has gone into combat and risked life and limb for us, risk life and limb to defend our freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And you have brainwashed kids who now think that freedom of expression is dangerous. That thought is dangerous. Uh, Alan Dershowitz is somebody worth listening to. Alan Dershowitz has made it abundantly clear 
that while he finds hate speech abhorrent, it needs to be protected because that's part of the Constitution. The old concept of I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Who is the arbiter who's going to decide what constitutes hate speech? And don't you want to know who the haters are? Let them out themselves so you know who we're dealing with and how crazy they are. The best way of eliminating the crazies is to allow them to self-identify, and you do that through free speech. But we don't want that today. We don't want people questioning the government, because if you question the government, that's seen as an insurrection. The way you speak truth to power, folks, is by questioning authority. Question authority. You think the election wasn't fair? You have every right to say it, except now you're being told you don't. If you dare challenge the outcome of an election, you're an insurrectionist. Although, when President Trump was elected, how many Democrats stood up in Congress and said, I challenge the outcome of this election? Were they insurrectionists? Well, it depends. If you think that anybody who stood up and said that the election with Donald Trump seemed to be problematic and you're now called an insurrectionist, that's a problem. Politicians are entitled to a recount when there's a vote. That's not an act of insurrection. That's a constitutionally protected act. But if you listen to these people on the floor of the House, anybody who stood up and said, you know, there's so many irregularities, the mail-in ballots, they went through this whole litany, we have eyewitnesses. That's supposed to be protected by the Constitution. It's supposed to be. And now people are losing their jobs. People are, being, are getting death threats. And you have members of Congress saying, you know, maybe we should go after these people. They're insurrectionists. If you think it was crazy during the era, era of an era as well of, of McCarthy, McCarthyism, going after the communists, this is actually, I think, even more aggressive than Joe McCarthy at his worst. You question the outcome of the election, we need to come after you for insurrection. A member of Congress on the Republican side gave her family a tour of the White House the day before the riots, and now she's being accused of scoping out the Capitol before the attack because she may have been a co-conspirator. Talk about looking for spies under your bed at night. America can't continue to rip itself apart and survive. And that's just fine for countries like Iran and China and Russia. They're laughing their tails off. <clears throat> the American politicians that are doing this to the American people are doing the bidding of these foreign governments. You have to wonder, are they doing what they're doing because they really believe in it, or are they doing it because they've been told by China they better do it? Who knows? So much money has flown, flowed into the United States from China. You wonder how, who they bought and who they didn't buy. I have to look at everybody who makes any statement about not questioning elections and all this other crazy stuff that violates the First Amendment, and ask myself, and maybe you need to ask, could it be that some of these people are afraid of China and they're doing the bidding of the Chinese government? You never know. I'm not saying it's happening, but it certainly raises the question. And that's why questions are so important. And if you look at progress, technological, scientific, medical progress, it always starts with the question, couldn't we do that better? Couldn't we cure that disease in a more effective way? <clears throat> Couldn't we fly an airplane faster or make an airplane disappear off the radar scope and use stealth? Well, that was the question, and the answer was the F-117 and the F-22 fighter and others to come, because engineers and scientists asked, can we do this? 
And the answer was yes, and we developed the technology, but it was in response to a question. Any society that is fearful of questions is fearful of its own citizenry, and that by itself calls into question the legitimacy of that government. I love debate. When I have a personal position on a critical issue, I'm happy to debate it, because before I take a position, I research it carefully, and the first person I challenge and challenge with the greatest enthusiasm is myself. I want to make sure that I'm not getting it wrong. And once I do my homework and I come to conclusions about certain issues, I'm happy to have that debate because I believe that I could win over the people who disagree with me when I realize that the facts, common sense, the law, and morality are all on my side. Why wouldn't I want to debate it? The only person who's fearful of debate is the person who knows that their position cannot be sustained in an argument. So that then calls into question, why do they have that position? If it runs contrary to common sense, morality, the law, whatever. Very disturbing. But we're starting to hear this steady drumbeat. You challenge the election, you're an insurrectionist. You issue hate speech, we're going to shut you down. What's hate speech? I mean, sometimes you really know what it is. It's like a judge once said, it's hard to define pornography, but you know it when you see it. There are areas of hate speech where as soon as you hear it, you say, oh, boy, this guy's, you know, off the wall. But you're on a slippery slope where people are going to expand it. And I want you to think about something. I had a lot of problems with the Patriot Act after 9-11. Remember, I've arrested terrorists. I've investigated them. That's why I was called by the 9-11 Commission to provide them with a deposition and testimony. That's why Congress, both parties and both houses, called me to testify at a whole bunch of hearings. Because they said, you've got real-world experience. Can, can you help us here? And the idea of the Patriot Act makes sense to be able to use surveillance tactics and so forth that would not normally be available to prevent terror attacks. But what bothers me, and I, I, I've talked about this in several interviews. I did a, In fact, I was interviewed at One American News. I understand they aired it this afternoon. They'll probably be airing it this weekend. So if you get a chance to catch one American news, I'm not sure when I'll be up there, but I'm going to imagine they'll be rerunning it. Uh, one of the things that worries me is what happened with the RICO statutes. RICO is the racketeering statutes that were enacted during the administration of President John F. Kennedy. His brother, as you may know, Robert Kennedy, was his attorney general. They were going after organized crime, the mob. And they said, we need tough laws. So under the RICO statutes, you can really drop a legal safe on the mob's head. You know, they have predicate felonies that help other felonies. You put together a racketeering case, and you can put them away for a long time and seize all their assets. Very powerful weapon against the mob. But we are now at the point where many more people with no mob affiliations have been prosecuted under the RICO, under the racketeering statutes, that have racketeers, mobsters. There's always that slide, you know. Well, we used it against the mob, it was so effective. We've got this guy here selling dope. We got this guy here who's laundering money. We got this guy who evaded taxes. Why don't we see if we could apply those statutes to them? That wasn't why those laws were enacted. But in a power grab and people do this, they say, Well, I can make use of that law. Well is your guy a mobster? No, but what's the difference? Is that guy a terrorist? Well, what's the difference? We could use the Patriot Act, can't we? And, and that's what I've been fearful of, that you create strong measures to go after a very serious existential threat 
But unless you shut it down, maybe with a you know a provision that says after X number of years it ends, or it has to be renewed. Well, it had to be renewed. They renewed it. Uh, lots of misgivings. And there's overheated rhetoric. Members of Congress accusing other members of Congress of providing a guided tour to the Capitol before the mob overran the Capitol on January 6th. I understand that some congressmen compared it to 9-11. Believe me, it wasn't 9-11. People died. And anytime people die, my heart breaks. Let's be very clear. We don't trivialize death. And, and it's not a box score. I used to hate it during the Vietnam War. You turn on the radio. And it was like listening to a ball game. This last week, you know, 293 soldiers on such and such side died. And on the other side, we, this isn't an athletic event. You don't measure a war that way. The loss of any human life is a great tragedy. Okay, let's be very clear. But the way things are being portrayed, um, again, it's extremely disturbing. It's extremely disturbing. We really got to make the government accountable to the American people, and it's not. And it hasn't been accountable for decades because of the lobbyists. When you hear politicians, and, and Ted Cruz was one of many, for America to lead, we need to bring in the world's best and brightest. Tell you what, folks, to me, that's an anti-American statement. It's not what Eisenhower said after Sputnik was launched. Eisenhower emphasized teaching math and science to American children, not calling up some other country to send us their students that we should educate so they can stay here and take the jobs. Eisenhower said American kids must learn math and science so America will continue to lead the world. And that's what they did. Why would you import foreign workers and not take care of your own? And do you think that Americans are genetically inferior somehow? The Ted Cruz line, we need to bring in the world's best and brightest? Look, if we're talking about a handful of exceptional people, I agree. If you're talking about exceptional people, I'm there with you. Elon Musk, Albert Einstein, Edward Teller, Enrico Fermi. Sure, these were extraordinary people. They made extraordinary contributions. I have no problem with that. But we've gotten to the point that every year we're admitting hundreds of thousands of foreign workers, hundreds of thousands of foreign students. That's not exceptional by definition. That's just a mob of people from another country willing to take lower wages for the same work. This is about exploitation. Now, remember, there's always, more, there's always room for more oarsmen on a slave ship. So for the longest time, Americans have been disheartened. They see their ability to support themselves and their families evaporating. They look to their children and say, you know, there's no way my son or my daughter is going to live a better life than I did. That was the American dream. Every generation did better. My mother had a fourth grade education. She came to the United States ahead of the Holocaust as a 13-year-old girl. Imagine that. Worked in a roomie, lived in a roomie house and worked in an umbrella factory, a sweatshop for $3 a week. Fourth grade education. My dad had an eighth grade education. Not only am I the first member of my family to go to high school, I'm the first member to go to college and get a degree. That was the American dream. Every child would do better than his or her parents, earn more money, get a better education, live a more exciting and, and, and worthwhile, I won't say worthwhile, but more exciting and challenging life. No more. We're going to keep on bringing in foreign workers, even when they displace Americans, or especially when they displace Americans. And we're supposed to go, rah, rah, how great is that? Why do you think 
nearly a million people showed up on the Capitol when Donald Trump held that rally on January 6th. Why are the politicians from both parties vilifying the fact that 74 million or 75 million people voted for President Trump? The old politician would look at 75 million and say, holy smoke, how do I get a part of that massive voting block? And look how enthusiastic they are. If I could only harness those people, boy, oh boy, could I win an election. But Hillary Clinton started this nuts, this nuttiness, this nuts business. Oh, they are the deplorables, the basket of deplorables, homophobes, xenophobes, and she goes through this litany. Why have you heard a politician attacking voters? Think about that. They attack each other. But I've never before heard a politician say, oh, those people, there's something inherently immoral and wrong and stupid about them. They're supporting my opponent. The hell with them. They belong in a basket of deplorables. Let them clutch their Bibles and their guns. I believe it was Obama who said that. This flies in the face of, of what politics is supposed to be about. You expect politicians to try to court voters. Vote for me because the guy you're supporting isn't worth your support. And this is what I'm going to do for you. That's how it used to be done. Now, you're an idiot. You're a crook. You're an insurrectionist. You're, you're a traitor to America, and, and we need to reprogram you. What are we going to do, open concentration camps? We need to reprogram you? Are you serious? When in the world have you ever before heard this kind of an attack launched by American politicians against American citizens, citizens in their own country? Basket of deplorables. Really? This is dangerous. Because normally politicians want people to vote for them. They don't do it by attacking them or calling them names. They do it by saying, I'm here to help you. I'm here to, to do what you want me to do so that you can live a better life, so that your children can have a brighter future. But that's not what we heard. We heard you're deplorable, you're a seditionist, you're an anarchist. Americans, because they simply said, gee whiz, there's all these voting irregularities. Why can't we question that? Don't you dare question anything. Of course not. If you have a boss, doesn't your boss ask you questions? When did you have that meeting? What came out of that meeting? Did you accomplish the goals in that meeting? And I don't care what work you do. If I went over and met with the U.S. attorney, my boss would call me in afterwards. How did the meeting go? Okay. Are they going to prosecute this guy on immigration charges? No, they're not. What do you mean? Why aren't they? And you explain it. Or maybe your boss goes over and talks to the U.S. attorney. That's how people are made accountable through the asking of questions. Did you speak to the U.S. Attorney? Yes. What happened? I got a search warrant. Great. When are you doing it? Tomorrow. You want us to send some agents out with you? Absolutely. There's a give and take. We ask questions. You see somebody you haven't seen in a while. Hey, Charlie, how are you? It's a question. But if you question the government, you're going to be labeled an insurrectionist. God knows, a terrorist. I have a confession. This stuff scares the crap out of me. To not be able to say, gee whiz, I'm concerned about how that election was conducted. Politicians should be happy to throw open the doors and windows and say, come look, you'll see, we did everything right. And then they show you they did everything right. You say, gee whiz, I guess the guy I like lost because he lost. But when they say to you, don't you dare question the outcome, immediately, being the cynic that I am, 30 years in law enforcement, you say, gee whiz, what are they hiding? Indeed, what are they hiding? Now, I've spoken about it before, but I really want to speak about it again because this is so critical, and it's immigration, and it's Joe Biden. And I want to start out with something that I found very interesting, this dichotomy, the split. When President Trump became the president, the first thing he said was, 
I'm going to undo DACA, Deferred Action Childhood Arrival. That seems fair enough. DACA was not a law. DACA was purely a temporary program created by an executive order by the outgoing Barack Obama. And it was a sham. And to briefly recap, the deferred action is something we always did at immigration on a case-by-case basis for humanitarian purposes. For example, a family comes to the United States, they go on vacation, and while they're on vacation, they're at an amusement park, their child falls down and has a fractured skull or a broken leg or some other injury, or, or grandma is with them and she has a stroke. That family member winds up in the hospital. They may be there for a lengthy period of time. Would it be reasonable for the United States government to say, well, we don't care if your grandmother's in a coma and she's in a hospital. You need to go back to your home country because you were told you have to leave by January 30th. It's now January 30th. Get on that airplane or else. We didn't do that. We shouldn't do that. We would give them what was known as deferred action. What will we defer? Because defer means to put something off for the future. They were supposed to leave the country, and we told them we're going to suspend that. You could stay here so you could care for your grandmother, so you can be at her bedside. You can take care of your son because he has that terrible injury. It would be outrageous to send people home. Why would you want to do that? And if they have to be here for a really extended period of time, we might even give them permission to work because very few people are financially in the position to not work and still support themselves and their families. So if, let's say, a neurosurgeon said, yes, she has a blood clot on the brain, she's going to have to be in the hospital several months, and then she's going to have rehab. We might say, okay, we're going to give you permission to stay for six months with employment authorization because six months is a long period of time. But before that time is up, we need to hear back from your doctor to find out what progress your grandmother is making in the hospital. And we used to do investigations into this, and it was the right thing to do. I was happy to help out because we were very often able to help families stay in the country so they could care for a loved one. Or if it was, it was a person who had a child, we could, you could care for the child. It was, it was a humanitarian, decent thing to do for all this nonsense about how immigration agents are thugs. We all like doing this because we're all human, and terrible things can happen to any of us. Nobody's immune. So Obama comes along and says, hey, you can let people stay here temporarily? Let's do that with a million illegal aliens, so-called kids. They came here as children. We don't know if they came as children. The media dutifully reports on they came as kids. You don't know that. All they have to do is say they got here before their 16th birthday, right? And, you know, they could be 30-something years old now. Well, where's your proof? Well, I've had 15 different aliases. What do you want to see? Lots of luck. So that makes no sense. So when you look at what Obama did, I said that what he referred to as prosecutorial discretion should really be called prosecutorial deception. Congress failed to act, I'm acting. No, Congress did not fail to act. Congress acted and said no. He didn't want to take no for an answer. So he came up with DACA by executive order. And a number of courts held that DACA was illegal. In comes President Trump. He says, well, I told my voters I'm not going to allow this to continue. And judges told him, you cannot get rid of an executive order that was created by the prior president. When have you ever seen that happen? So here's my $64 question. Day one, Biden sat down at that desk in the Oval Office and started issuing executive orders to countermand Trump's executive orders. For example, 
the travel, what they call the travel ban. It wasn't. Trump's ability to communicate was deplorable. It was horrible. I hate to use the word deplorable. I think about Hillary. Uh, it has nothing to do with Hillary. Um, it was terrible. I'll be honest. I, I liked a lot of Trump's policies, and I recognized the way that he speaks. He reminds me of the construction workers I grew up around with because my dad was a construction worker. But as president, his language needed to be more polished and more nuanced, not because I'm offended. Believe me, I'm not offended. But certain things that he said were wrong. It wasn't a travel ban. It wasn't Muslim-majority countries. But some of this nonsense that came out, and, and, and the reality is those countries are countries that sponsor terrorism. We have no way of verifying who these people are or whether they're involved with terrorism. In fact, the leader of Iran just posted something on Facebook, and Facebook took down his account where it showed President, it looked like President Trump on the golf course with a stealth bomber flying overhead and, and in Farsi. The, it was supposed to say revenge or something to that effect. In other words, a not-so-veiled threat against the former president. Well, one of the countries on the list that now that Biden says we can admit are aliens from Iran. That's brilliant. Just what we want to do. And how do you know whether those people are involved with terrorism? You don't. Very dangerous. But the, the incredible thing is that Biden was able to issue executive orders to countermand Trump's executive orders. And at least so far, I haven't heard a single judge stand up and say, wait a minute, you can't do that. So far, everyone's saying, isn't it wonderful? So when Trump tried to issue an executive order to cancel DACA, he got attacked by judges in multiple jurisdictions. But here's Biden doing the same thing with Trump. And that one voice is ringing out and saying, wait a minute, that executive order was issued by your predecessor. You can't undo it. Where Trump is concerned, folks, you can undo everything and anything. And that's not fair. And that's not the way it ought to be because justice requires balance equal treatment, equal protection under the law, but not so much today, apparently. Go figure. Now, it's also interesting because President Trump issued another executive order that said that by next week, citizens of Great Britain, Brazil, and European countries will be able to enter the United States if they have a test with them that shows they are testing negatively for the COVID virus, or they've had the COVID virus and they've re recuperated completely. Well, guess what? Um, Biden, and by the way, Cuomo, jumped in and said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to let people in from England. We're not going to let people in from Brazil. They might be sick. So he countermanded that order. What about the people coming across the border? Mexico has such an issue with COVID that their hospitals are overwhelmed. And even if people come to the United States from Latin America without COVID, they may have other medical emergencies that will require them to go to hospitals that are already overflowing where they can't deal with their patients now. Who cares, right? So Biden wants to undo the great work that President Trump did securing our southern border, wants to end immigration law enforcement, and says unless you've committed a felony after 100 days, because during the first 100 days, no one's getting deported. We don't care if you've murdered people and chopped people's heads off. We're not going to deport you. We're going to wait 100 days. And then the only reason we would deport anybody is if they have serious crimes. Sleeper agents have no serious crimes, and frequently, by going after an illegal alien, you wind up unraveling a terror plot. My very first investigation as a brand-new immigration agent when I was assigned to the frauds unit involved a young man from Israel. He was about a year or two younger than I was, and I was in my middle 20s as a young kid. And he had a visa that was supposed to be a one-time visa, 
He changed the word one to a two. It showed up in the black light. He had already been here a year earlier. He changed the year of expiration by a year. So it appeared at first glance that this passport was valid for yet another entry. <clears throat> but it wasn't. But it wasn't. And, and, and so the consequence of that is that he was arrested by the inspectors at Kennedy Airport, the immigration inspectors. And they said, you can't do this. He denied that he did anything wrong, and I caught the case. And this was my very first solo case, because up until now, up until that point, I was working with a senior partner your first year. You have a senior partner who keeps you out of trouble, who mentors you, who evaluates you, because sometimes people don't have what it takes to be an agent. And if a couple of those senior partners write somebody up and they say, boy, this guy just doesn't have it, you're gone looking for a new career. So I was finishing up my first year. Everything was going along just fine. My boss said, go upstairs. We got this guy in custody. Go interview him. Long story short, I found buried in his clothing a shirt that with a pocket sewn into it. Um, the Israeli consulate came out. The, the consul general from Israel came out. They were interviewing him. While they're questioning him, I noticed the shirt didn't fit properly. I took the shirt off him, found the pocket, opened it up, and found a a schematic diagram written in Arabic. I handed it to the Israelis. It turned out to be the oil refinery in Israel that Hamas or Hezbollah or the PLO, I guess it was the PLO in those days, was planning to attack. The Israelis were able to stop the attack. They rounded up a half dozen other would-be co-conspirators. It was a very important lesson. Terrorists don't necessarily have criminal histories. In fact, most terrorists don't. Bear with me as I get a quick sip of tea here. Somebody once said that an effective terrorist is very much like an effective spy. And an effective spy is somebody who would not attract the attention of a waiter, a waitress, and a greasy spoon diner. In fact, I've made the point that it may well be that that waiter, a waitress, and that greasy spoon diner is that spy or terrorist. So this idea, if you have no felony convictions, but you violate the immigration laws, we have no interest in doing anything to you. That fires the starter's pistol for aspiring illegal aliens from all over the world. That's how you overwhelm the system. That's how you create chaos. The border wall, by the way, is designed as the antidote to chaos. The border wall is not designed to stop anybody from entering the United States. The purpose of the border wall is to funnel <clears throat> all commerce, all people through ports of entry where they can be screened. It's like going to the bank and they have those velvet ropes so that they can send people to the next available teller. We do the same thing at the airports with TSA, don't we? They have those black ribbon devices, you know, where they set up cattle runs of, of people, so they guide you to the next available TSA inspector who goes through your baggage, and they do a quick search on you. Hopefully it's quick. And then, then you move on to the airplane. Well, that's what this is about. The border wall does not block ports of entry. If they block ports of entry, then I would agree it's designed to keep people out, but it doesn't. So all it does is create an orderly process, which apparently does not please somebody who's an immigration anarchist, uh, like the Democrats. Immigration, law enforcement. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants to eliminate immigration enforcement altogether. Meanwhile, while we're hearing about domestic terror, what seems to be ignored is that just a day or two ago, there was a, a, a bombing uh, by ISIS in the Middle East. They're not gone. And if Joe Biden doesn't act and act decisively, we could see a resurgence of the caliphate. Remember when Obama made the point that ISIS was the JV squad, nothing to see here, folks? And they started to gobble up huge 
quantities of land and they were holding those beheadings on the beach. That ended almost the day that Trump took power. Are we going to see that happening again? God forbid. People having their heads chopped off and being told by our president here, nothing to see here, they're the JV squad. Understand what we're dealing with. And immigration law enforcement used to be the responsibility of the Labor Department to protect the jobs and wages of American workers. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, no further left the politician than that, made the statement that we need to enforce the immigration laws. Why? To protect jobs and wages for American workers. That's when the government stood for Americans. And now you're hearing people like Ted Cruz and others, both parties, for America to lead, we need to bring in the world's best and brightest. Well, I've confronted them and I've told them. You know, I'm from Brooklyn, and where I come from, we have a term for the world's best and brightest. We call them Americans. So you have these political betrayers telling us, if we're going to lead, we need to bring in the world's best and brightest. We're not talking about a few exceptional people, which I would agree with completely. But we are talking about hundreds of thousands of foreign workers. This is an army. Hundreds of thousands of foreign students. We're educating the people who want to kill us. How brilliant is that? And you go back to February the 24th, 1998, the Senate had a hearing, Senate Judiciary Committee had a hearing about foreign terrorists operating in the United States. And Dianne Feinstein, Dianne Feinstein said three things. Maybe we should end the visa waiver program. Well, I've been screaming about that gift, if you want to call it that, from Ronald Reagan for years. She also said we should probably not be giving visas to aliens that come from countries that sponsor terrorism. Sounds exactly what President Trump did, but nobody rioted. And this was before 9-11, three and a half years before 9-11. And then she said, we certainly shouldn't be giving training in the sciences to people that come from countries that sponsor terrorism. You give people training in physics, biochemistry, chemistry, and so forth, you could be teaching America's adversaries how to build weapons of mass destruction, and that will not end well. She was right. So what happened to Diane Feinstein? What happened to all of them? I don't know what happened to all of them. I do know that they've changed their position. And the position they now take is anti-American. Anybody who in large scale wants to bring in foreign workers is telling you that they have absolutely no regard for Americans or American children or the families or the homelessness. Let's displace American workers, folks. How cool. Let's make all these Americans unemployed, unemployable, and homeless. Why in the world would you do that? Why wouldn't you say, listen, this is America. We've scored all these firsts. We went to the moon over 50 years ago. No country has done that since. And we did it repeatedly. We have spacecraft flying out of the solar system, the Voyager, the Pioneer, and New Horizons, on their way out of the solar system, broke all kinds of records, and those records are still falling. We did that. America did that. We were the first country to fly faster than the speed of sound. Chuck Yeager, I have a model of his airplane sitting on top of my briefcase that my wife got me as a gift. So when you look at all of our achievements and you listen to the politicians talk about the need to bring in the world's best and brightest, and then you had Alan Greenspan testify for Schumer back in 2009 and saying that the, the solution to wage inequality is to make American high-tech workers compete with foreign workers And in so doing, we could get rid of their wage premium. And once you drop the wages of middle-class, high-tech workers, you greatly reduce inequality in wages between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. So in other words, 
Alan Greenspan's goal is that if you drop out of high school and you're flipping hamburgers, you shouldn't be making much less than somebody who spent years studying for a Ph.D. in nuclear physics. He actually called America's high-tech workers the privileged elite. Does that not enrage you? So the American people are looking at the government saying, well, what is the government doing for me? I sent my kids to school. They work their butts off. They have great degrees. They have wonderful averages. They're, they're, they're brilliant. And they're working at a hamburger joint. They can't get a job in their field. But we're bringing in people from India. Both parties have done this to us. And Joe Biden wants to do it even more. And then we hear this nonsense about driver's licenses for illegal aliens. Well, you would think after 9-11 and after all the attacks that we've seen that involve motor vehicles, that we would no longer give driver's licenses to motor vehicles. But, of course, that's not the case. And Joe Biden's just fine with that. He's just fine with that. Look at all those barriers to truck bombs and car bombs all over the country, mostly in front of important buildings or shopping malls, all these, you know, impediments to keep the bad guys out. Why are we trying to keep them out of the country? We had fences erected within 24 hours around the Capitol after January the 6th. And Joe Biden going nuts about the fact that President Trump managed to build a border wall, even as judges and other members of Congress and so forth tried everything to stop him. Imagine a president who keeps his promises. And again, I have my issues with Trump. I was very unhappy that he fired Jeff Sessions. I think Jeff Sessions is a decent guy. I know him. I've met with him. I've spoken with him. He got the short end of the stick. No leader is a leader without flaws. We are all flawed human beings, and I don't care who you are. But Donald Trump was the first president, maybe since Eisenhower, to stand up and say, we're going to put Americans first. He was the guy who stood up and said, we're going to protect wages of Americans. We're going to make sure that Americans do better and unemployment dropped. So instead of the Democrats saying, well, what do we have to do to copy Trump's style because it's apparent that the American people love it, that question is, how do we discredit him so he doesn't run again because he talked about running in 2024? And we can't have that because, God forbid, he might win that election. So rather than creating a counterpoint and saying, this is what we're going to do for you, America, they take a different approach. The Democrats come out and basically threaten Americans and say, you question anything, you see that National Guard, you see all those submachine guns, don't mess with us. Is that truth, justice, in the American way? Are you kidding me? And then we go into this whole thing that Biden says he's going to legalize 11 million illegal aliens, when in reality, it's probably 25 million, but the big number that no one's talking about is how many kids they could bring in, because each and every alien that gets legalized can bring in every single one of his minor children as immigrants. So if we're going to be an optimist and we say, okay, there's about 25 million of these illegals, and let's say they only, on average, bring in four kids each, because I think the number's going to be higher. I'm being an optimist. I'm an optimist when they say 25 million, and I'm an optimist when they say four minor kids per alien. Folks, we're looking at an influx of 100 million people. 100 million. That's one, zero, 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 zero. 100 million. Wow. What would that impact be on the environment, on the economy? Because those kids need education. They're going to need health care. They're going to need food and water and electricity and sewerage and transportation. This would be catastrophic. And no one is asking a fundamental question. We're not allowed to ask questions anymore. 
What question would you like to ask Joe Biden about that? I know what I'd like to ask him. Simple question. A three-letter question. Why? Why would you do this to us? Another question. How does this benefit us? Where do you see a benefit, folks, in 100 million immigrant children coming to America in the next two years, let's say? 100 million. 100 million, maybe more, maybe 150 million. Their, their parents could come here also. What are we doing? Hospitals are turning away people with COVID and they're dying. The death rate is going back up again. Funeral homes around the country are turning families away, saying we don't have the resources to bury a loved one. We're out of caskets. We're out of, we're out of everything. So this is the time to fling open the doors and bring in millions of people. And by the way, even if they don't have COVID, people over time, a certain percentage, are going to need hospitalization. They're going to fall down. They're going to break an ankle. They're going to break a hand. They're going to break a shoulder. They're going to fracture their skull. They're going to get mugged. They're going to get shot. They're going to get stabbed. They're going to get sick. It doesn't have to be COVID. They might get a heart attack. They might have other issues, right? Other issues. So, so the obvious question, if that's the case, How do you care for them if our hospitals in many parts of the country are overflowing? Mexico's hospitals are way overbooked, if you want to call it that. And then you get to the point that President Trump tried to or actually issued an executive order that said that we could start admitting people from England, Europe, and Brazil. They were shut off because of this new variant of COVID-19, but then... President Trump said in his executive order that next year, next week, rather, if these folks come to the United States with certificates showing they've been vaccinated or that they have, um, um, they don't have the COVID, I think that they have been vaccinated or that they don't have the COVID virus or that they had it and were completely recovered. So they're no longer a threat. Now, you would think that Joe Biden, you would think that Andrew Cuomo, who want open borders, would embrace this. Instead, they're doing the opposite. They're saying, no, 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 we're not letting you in. If you're from Europe next week, stay out. We're not going to let you in, ostensibly because of the COVID virus. But when you hear all this talk about white supremacists, could it be that he's looking at this, Biden is looking at this with his advisors and saying, wow, England, wow. No, we don't want Europeans. Because Europeans are a problem. I was told that my, prob- my biggest problem during a debate by a professor from, a, from Spain she told me my biggest problem was that my view of the world was Eurocentric. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't from Spain, it was from Latin America. Latin America. Your problem, Mr. Cutler, is your view of the world is Eurocentric. So that's a problem. This was a couple of years ago. If you're from Europe, you're a bad person, we shouldn't let you in. Could that be why Obama, I'm sorry, Biden and, uh, and Cuomo don't want people coming to the United States from Europe? Because Europeans have a problem? Did anybody look and notice that, that both of those guys are, are white and Cuomo is of Italian ancestry and Biden's of Irish ancestry? But the excuse is we can't let people in from Europe because they might have the virus, even though they could have been tested and so forth. But if you're coming here across the border in that surge, I'm sure that'll be okay. And many of them may have the virus. We don't know. But why quibble? We have a country to change. Chuck Schumer said it, didn't he? First we take Georgia, then we change America. I thought I heard him say 
to change the world. Maybe that was his original goal, and he tamped it down a little bit. But again, the question that needs to be asked of Biden, of Kamala Harris, how does this help America or Americans? Why should we want to bring in 100 million? And by the way, no one's talking about that number. We keep hearing 11 million, 11 million, 11 million is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. We could be talking about 100 million, 150 million. I'm being an optimist. If you have a guy who's had children with five different women, and that is not uncommon. And let's say that with each woman, he's had three or four kids. This one guy could have, you know, 15 kids. Every single one would be immediately entitled to come to America, be enrolled in American schools, and get, a, get on the pathway to citizenship. How would we cope with the influx of 100 million immigrants? That's the question. Where is the benefit? Why would you do this? No one's asking the questions. Don't you think they should be asking that question if they think that they're serious journalists? I'd love to know what they think the answer is going to be. How in the world does it help America to flood America with those kids who, in a short period of time, many of them are going to become part of the labor pool? So now with all this talk about all the jobs you're going to create for Americans, remember what happened to the unemployment rate because of COVID. And now you're going to add to that tens of millions of potential workers for Americans and lawful immigrants to compete with? Is that a winning strategy? Is it a winning strategy to say this American first business has to end? Imagine you had a baseball team and you're hiring a possible coach and you say to the coach, what do you think about the World Series? And he says, oh, World Series? No, no, I don't care what happens there. We don't want to offend the other ball teams. They're going to go home and cry. They're going to suck their thumb. They're going to look for a security puppy. Why would we want to win the World Series? That wouldn't be fair. If you were the owner of a baseball team and a candidate for the position of coach made that statement, would you hire that coach? I don't think so. To ask you another question that I asked and got a very warm reception at Fox News last year, my question was very simple. Would you be willing to get on an airplane if you saw people sneaking past the TSA? And Julian, the attractive brunette on the program, they're very nice people, Rob and Julian, Julian let out a little squeal and says, oh, my God, of course not. I said, then why in the world are we being forced to live among millions of people who have no inherent right to be in the United States? They entered our country by evading that very same vetting process, uh, not unlike some guy sidestepping TSA at the airport. And we do that vetting process at ports of entry for very much the same purpose, to keep out criminals and terrorists and human, viol- human rights violators and so forth, gangbangers. Do you not think that that is the responsibility of the country? to take care of its own citizens? If you have children and you give money to charity while sending your own children to bed hungry, welfare is going to come along and take your children for being an unfit parent. But isn't that what's happening to Americans? Crime is up through the roof. Americans are unemployed. And Joe Biden says, open the floodgates. You know what this is like? This is like playing musical chairs. I'm sure you folks are familiar with that game. You have a bunch of kids circling a bunch of chairs that are facing in two directions. The only problem is there's one fewer chair than there are kids. And when the music stops, everyone scrambles and everyone gets in a chair. And the one person who's not in the chair, still standing, 
is out. And that person takes one of those chairs with him or her. And then the music resumes, and now you have one fewer kid and one fewer chair, and the music stops, and everybody scrambles for a chair. And one person is out, and they give him a chair, and he or she leaves, and we try until you get down to two people and one chair, and then finally one person gets into that one chair, and the other person is left standing there and loses. So the person that made it into the chair is the winner. Simple concept. So let's think about how that applies to jobs. You have a limited number of jobs. You have Americans looking for those jobs, and they're circling the chairs, which represent the jobs. And then suddenly the doors get kicked open, and dozens of more kids come flying into the room to compete with the chairs, but nobody brings in any more chairs because we don't have the ability to create more jobs at that particular time. So all we're doing is throwing in lots more kids into that room to compete for the remaining chairs. Now, what does that do to the odds of an American or lawful immigrant getting a seat in that chair now that we've thrown the doors open to God knows how many millions of foreign workers? That's your analogy for the day. That's the picture I want you to think about over the weekend. How does that help Americans? So now instead of competing with a handful, you're going to be competing with a huge number of people. And because there's so many people looking for a job, the employer looks around and says, gee whiz, I was going to pay $80,000 for that tech job, but you see all those people I have? I'm going to only pay 60000 It's not fiction, folks. It's how it works. But no one is asking Biden the tough questions. They're going to ask him what color shoes he likes. Does he like polka dot or striped socks? What flavor ice cream? That was a biggie. Oh, you like ice cream, Mr. President. What flavor? And the world collectively holds its breath as they wait to get the dessert order from the President of the United States of America. Are you kidding me? With everything going on, COVID, the threat of terrorism, unemployment, homelessness, businesses being destroyed, what flavor ice cream do you like, Mr. President? Thank God we have journalists asking those hard questions. I mean, goodness gracious. I couldn't wait to find out that he liked vanilla, which I happen to like also. We're in deep trouble. Repeatedly, that as Americans, we have the responsibility of engaging our neighbors in conversations and sitting down with them and saying, look, this doesn't make any sense. Compassion doesn't mean committing suicide. Compassion doesn't mean giving up your job or your ability to secure uh, your family's future. Our immigration laws aren't designed out of bigotry, but they're designed to protect national security, public safety, public health, the jobs and wages of American workers, and nothing could be fairer. There's nothing racist or bigoted about it. Any politician who thinks that we still need to bring in more workers from other countries so that America can lead, that politician needs to be out of work yesterday. Please get involved. Please check out my article at Front Page Magazine and forward it to everybody. I lay out in my article all of these concerns and many more, and I hope that it's helpful for you to frame that argument with your neighbor who's having a problem dealing with reality. Please remember, folks, democracy is not a spectator sport. I wish you all a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. Stay warm. Stay well. See you next week.